I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two different friends, Amy's like a golden retriever, and I am definitely a grumpy cat, talk about the amazing advantages that come from living a bookish life. Each week we do a deep dive Q&A with a book lover, an author, awesome, a bookseller, bingo, a member of a book club, marvelous. We chat with bibliophiles from all over about why stories are integral to who they are. We love independent bookstores and try to feature one each season, but this can be difficult. As small business owners, it is often hard to carve time out of their weeks to speak with us, so we're always grateful when the stars align and we can make it happen. This week's episode features Michelle Herring, owner of Cupboard Maker Books in Enola, Pennsylvania, which is right outside the capital of Harrisburg. She tells us about how she first sold rare books and then more widely used books and then new books. And the bookstore has also joined forces with a local nonprofit to carry, and yes, we're putting carry in air quotes, adoptable cats. There are three store cats that visitors can always see, Mouse, Annika and Zach. And what goes better with a cozy book than a cat on your lap, at least in Carrie's estimation, and oftentimes mine, if it's a nice cat, of course. Of course. (laughs) And most of them are. (laughs) But first, it's been a, well, it's been a hard week in many, many ways. Yeah. But I will say that since Friday, let's just say since Friday, I have, my reading has been, unless I'm like in bed. I'm just having a terrible time focusing. Yeah, that Supreme Court decision has rattled a lot of us and it's been a little hard to concentrate. And But I've been trying to read light, fun books because I don't want anything too heavy. And we have finished the last episode of season four of Stranger Things until the next two come along, which are hopefully soon in the next couple of weeks. Do you know yeah. when they come out? Well, I first. Oh, okay. So yeah. we don't have to wait long. No, we finished that too. We, okay. we finished the last season or episode seven rather. I should have looked this up, but is there a season after this? Do you know? Is there a season after this, like for next summer? I don't know. It was my impression that there's going to be one last season next year. But then somebody told me, no, they thought that this was the last season. And so now I'm worried. I'm worried that this is the last season because I love this show so much. It makes me, (laughs) it takes me back to my teenage years in the 1980s when we used to watch like weird space alien monster movies and things like that. And I just, I kind of wish it could continue forever and ever. But I know these kids are getting too old to play these characters much longer. Uh, Let's see. Season five would be its last. So we're on season four. We're on season four. Season five will be its last. Uh, This is an article from Esquire, and it's an interview with the Duffer brothers. This is a quote from them. Seven years ago, we planned out the complete story art for Stranger Things. At the time, we predicted the story would last four to five seasons. It proved too large to tell in four, but as you'll see for yourselves, we are now hurtling toward our finale. So it sounds like you've got one more season. Okay, one more season. And you know, this Kate Bush song that is very popular that is in this show is a song that I did used to listen to in the 80s. Cool. Did you, did you listen to any Kate Bush? I did not, but my husband did. Did he? Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I knew this one and I knew the Wuthering Heights song, but yeah, I don't know what I was listening to in the 80s. My my taste was not (laughs) great, I would say, in the 80s. I was listening to what I now think of as 
garbage. But I won't go into what that was because I don't want to yuck up somebody else's yum. So we watched the latest Doctor Strange movie, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. And we watched that last night. And after Friday's decision, I, I just I can't handle more heaviness just yet and so we watched that and I was like wow in some universe I was thinking about multiverses and I was like wow what if there's a universe in which this decision didn't happen wouldn't that be great (laughs) so anyway the multiverse it is comforting in a weird way to think about a multiverse although it doesn't actually exist except for maybe in stranger things where there's an upside down yeah you know. I, you know, I'm like, hey, there. people believe a lot of crazy stuff. And, you know, if, if that's what keeps me somewhat sane, I'm like, I'm for, for the time being until my mood improves, uh, I'm willing to be like, well, maybe there's a, a multiverse. So I'm doing what I have to do at this point. So this is going to be a completely boring thing, but we're only at the mid to late June and already my yard is dying a miserable death because it has been so hot and we haven't gotten a lot and dry usually this doesn't happen until like late july or august we don't have an irrigation system and we water when it looks like it's about to die but we're not consistently lawn waterers but my husband told me yesterday that he takes that as a badge of pride that he is not wasting the earth's water to have a green lawn and while i agree with him it is kind of hard to watch your lawn die at the end of June. Here's the thing. I have very strong feelings about the way we do our our lawns. Lawns are ridiculous. And somebody at some point decided that this is how American lawns need to look. And we all just blindly go along with it because, well, I don't know, because it takes thought and nonconformity to not. I'm a strong believer in on, on letting our lawns look different. I have a rain barrel and that's how I water my plants and we do not water our grass and I don't give a crap. If it looks bad, I don't care. Next, I keep adding flower beds and and planting native species. My hope next year is to have a, a pretty big section of our yard that's just wildflowers and... That Let it go and, and take my chances on what the homeowners association says. The older gentleman who lives next door, who's very kind, but, but gives you me- the stink eye. He is meticulous about his lawn. I mean, like meticulous. He's like mowing every other day. He's blowing. He's trimming. He's and I think he yeah. needs a different hobby. As well, nice as he may be, I think he needs to devote some of that time to like, I don't know, bigger causes <laughs> than his lawn. <laughs> Probably so. One time he power washed our driveway without asking us just because he liked using his power washer and he'd run out of things to do on his property. And that's not a colossal waste of water. (laughs) That's right. Let's wash the outdoors. (laughs) Let's wash the thing that we roll our cars on. Don't even get me started on that. (laughs) Well, so I think the theme is, I think the theme here is wasting water and let's go since that teased me off and and I've been in a state of ah, since Friday. Let's go talk about nice, happy things like bookstores with store cats that have adoptable cats there that people can come and, and adopt. That's, That's nice and happy and, and 
And, and it sounds soothing, doesn't it? It does. I, it does. Could, if I could like snap my fingers and be at Cupboard Maker Books right now, I would do it because that might be the trick to kind of. We need a portal. We need, we need a, portal. a portal. That's that's yeah. right. I think maybe Michelle would go along with that. Maybe. Yeah. Michelle Herring, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Some of the favorite episodes we do are when we talk to booksellers like yourself who own or or work in independent bookstores. And so I don't know how I came upon your Instagram page for Covered Maker Books, but I was intrigued because you have a lot of pictures of cats. And so that was the first thing that caught me and I've been following you ever since. So first of all, before we start talking about the bookstore, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you come to this part of your life owning a bookstore? So I always wanted to have a bookstore. I worked at an independent book bookstore. Well, it was a used bookstore. It was a used bookstore at a flea market, but it seemed like an independent bookstore when I was 16. And I loved it. I thought it was great. And so well, I went to college for history and then I went to graduate school and I did a master's in history and I worked for a small business development center. And I knew I either wanted to go for a PhD or to start a bookstore. And my boss, the person that ran the small business development center was like, you can always do your own business. You better go to get your PhD right now. And so I did the doctorate for a year. And meanwhile, I started a long distance relationship, second chance romance thing with my now husband. And he started his own business doing custom built painted furniture. And I was like, Ooh. oh, can I have a shelf in your store? And then I was like, can I have a little bit more? And that's how I ended up doing this. Wow. That's amazing. So did you finish your oh, God, PhD? No. <laughs> Sorry. I, I did it for a year. I'm really happy I tried it. It was an experience, but not the right one for me. So I finished all my coursework and shoved a note under one of my advisor's doors that said, hey, this is my paper. If you want to give me a grade, cool, but I'm never coming back. Bye. <laughs> oh my I, well, tell us a little bit about where your bookstore is located. So I am right across from the state capital of Pennsylvania. So we're in Enola, which is alone spelled backward, but that is not where the name came from. Everybody <laughs> pretends it is. It's not. So it's a train town. I'm right across from a freight classification yard. So there are trains outside the bookstore all the time. And it's Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So it's close to Hershey. That's always what people know is I'm near Hershey and I'm near Gettysburg, about 40 minutes oh, okay. from each. But it's really Harrisburg, the state capital. Oh, you are talking to a Penn State graduate. And we used to drive through Harrisburg all the time to head to my then boyfriend, now husband's parents house who lived near Philadelphia. And so I have a, a fondness for central Pennsylvania. So this is very exciting. That's for where me. I did my undergrad um, was Penn State. Yes, me too. What year? Um, what year 89 were you there? to 93. Okay. I was there 90 to 93. I graduated a semester early. I loved Penn State. It was a great place to spend four years. For somebody who hasn't been to your store, is it multi-level? What's kind of the vibe there? Is it? It's industrial. So they painted cars here. Well, first it was a car dealership, but 
we're not in the car dealership part. The car dealership part, the building's from the 1920s, but it doesn't look that way. It looks like a 70s block rectangle. But there's a lower level that was the car dealership. I don't use the lower level. It's too damp. I only use the the main floor that people see. And I'm 6,500 square feet, so that's pretty big. But it's pretty much yeah. two big rooms. Like there's no little cubby holes. Like what sections everything off are the bookcases. And our ceilings are 18 feet we don't go up high with the books. Sometimes bookstores can start to feel claustrophobic because it feels like mm-hmm. the cases are reaching the ceiling. Because of our high ceilings, there's an airiness in here. So what was the book hook for you? I wasn't an early reader. Like it hit in, I was eight. So the way I got hooked on reading is my mom, when I was really small, like three or four, let me watch Gone with the Wind. And I wanted to read the book, but I asked her when I was six, she said, I'll read you anything. Just bring me the book. And I brought her Gone with the Wind. And she read the first page and she's like, learn to read it yourself. So when I was eight, I did. So Gone with the Wind was like quite a, you know, a large early book to read. And I was hooked. And so I would read four books a day when I didn't have a job and when I was a kid. And these were four adult books, like at 12, because there was no young adult in the 80s. I'm seeing now the literature and the history, because if Gone with the Wind was something that that period attracted you, then I see where those seeds were planted. I haven't been able to read it since I was 24, though. I read it again at 24. I read it every year from eight till 16. And then at 24, I read it and I was like, you know, this is going to be something that I leave (laughs) because it's really (laughs) uncomfortable as an adult. But yeah, yeah. Any romance that you might have seen about it becomes tainted by so many things. It's so problematic. And we have books painted all around our building. Like the outside of our building is covered in paintings of book spines. And I won't do that one, even though it was the book that got Mm -hmm. me hooked. I don't feel comfortable with it now. So when you read now, do you tend to read histories? Do you tend to read historical fiction? Or are you just kind of all over the map in terms of what you enjoy reading? So the funny thing is, and I say this a lot, I said it this week to somebody who was buying a bunch of history. I'm familiar with history. But when I walked out of the history doctoral program, I left all the history behind. I read genre fiction. Mm -hmm. I read mysteries. I read romance. I read science fiction fantasy. I read things where the good guys win. And in history, the good guys don't always win. So you said that your bookstore started out a little bit by putting just a shelf in your husband's furniture making business. At what point did it go from a shelf to a whole bookstore? So it was gradual. So I had the shelf and then I had a bookcase and then he gave me a whole room. And I mean, while his store was growing a little bit and they were doing well, it wasn't my store. I was teaching high school history at a private school. I loved that. And then I got pregnant. We had been married for two years. I was teaching at a Catholic school. They were super encouraging to leave when you had tiny humans. So I Mm -hmm. taught my last year, told them I was giving them notice as soon as I got pregnant, finished out the school year and became a stay in the bookstore mom. So I raised Mm -hmm. my child in the store. Oh, that's amazing. It was wonderful. Yeah. Now, because your store is called Cupboard Maker Books, which I assume is referring to your husband's woodworking business. Is it two separate entities now? So somebody had to work full-time and have benefits. So he turned the business over to me when I had our son. And he's worked in the car business and sold cars for those 20 years. And we'll get to this, which is why the uh, mystery novel that I wrote is set in the car business. It's a love letter to him because- 
Oh, he hates the car business. They all know it. This is not a secret. Like he has a countdown and he's actually leaving the car business for his 50th birthday. So he quits next year. Oh, wow. But he tells his bosses and every day he's like, can I quit today? I'm like, you've got like 200 days left. Just (laughs) suck it up, babe. Oh, (laughs) so did he continue to do some woodworking on the side as a a hobby? Or did he just kind of He builds it? me bookcases. That's all he does is he builds me bookcases for oh. the bookstore, not for my house. My house is woefully inadequate in its bookcase space. <laughs> but during the shutdown, we were locked down. Everybody was. So for 10 weeks, we were closed. And my husband, son, and I, we all lived together. So we would just come to the bookstore. They built me 86 bookcases. Oh, my, oh gosh. my gosh. There is a pandemic project yep. right there. 86 mm-hmm. bookshelves. Oh, my goodness. We had lovely cases. They were from Ikea, but they were too small because, yeah, I know it sounds weird. Mm-hmm. Ikea cases were too small. But for a bookstore, I needed more space. So that's what we did. So you sell both new and used books. And apparently you have a large inventory that includes rare books. So when you first started the bookstore, what did you initially have and has it changed over oh, time? Oh, absolutely. When we first started, it was mainly rare. We did a lot with the internet, and that was 20 years ago. So the internet and selling online was a completely different proposition. So I listed anything that was rare and unusual. We bought British Parliament papers. They were the British Parliament reports on anything you can imagine. I sold some of those back to the British Library. So they must have lost their copies. Who knows? But I sold 11 back to England of those. We had tons of really neat rare things. The market changed because Amazon is evil, which I am willing to stand on that hill forever that Amazon is evil. And they kept cutting what we got paid. So we got rid of most of the online books probably 2018. I have about 200 online right now. And it's weird what's rare. The most interesting book I have up and the most expensive book I have listed right now is Fast Times at Ridgemont High. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Yep. Everything's different than what you think. Like I have a Farewell to Arms, a first edition. Now it's not in great shape and it doesn't have a dust jacket, but it's a Farewell to Arms by Hemingway. And that's worth yeah. worth less than the trade paperback of Fast Times at Richmond High. Or the Princess Bride, yeah, the first edition. Amazing. That one's really cool. I kept that one. Where do you get these? These things that people just bring to you? How do you find them? Some of these rare People books? bring them to me. What happens now is because wow. we've been doing this so long, we give store credit that can be used toward other books. And I'm totally mm-hmm. comfortable with that because most of the books that come in are what I call shelf stock. There's stuff that we just put in the store. And everybody knows my credit policy. I'm really clear on it. I don't give a lot of credit. That's always my first statement is, oh, we don't give a lot of credit. You can only use it for up to half your purchase. And stuff just comes in in huge amounts. Like I can't even get through it. And people, because they know I'll take Mm -hmm. them and I'll take everything. I won't take everything for credit. People can drop off. If they just want books to find a good home, they can drop off and donate. And I can find most of it to decent homes. And I think readers in general hate the idea of throwing a book away, even if it's a book that you're not interested in, if the cover's falling off, it doesn't matter. A reader does not want to throw a book away and wants another reader to have it. So I I can see where people are giving you books, even if they're not getting any kind of credit for it. So at what point did you add the new books? So we added the new books when we started up our book clubs. And we started our book clubs up in the early 2000s. Like, I don't even know how old my oldest book club is. 
And to do book clubs, I needed new books. And we did not have many. I mean, we probably had a couple hundred titles. And then we added some books by local authors. It was really nice. It was a nice thing to do. But it's grown. And it really grew out of the pandemic. Because that's really when we decided to start taking hot and heavy looks at new books. Now, there are some local authors that we have. One's a New York Times bestseller, Maria V. Snyder, and Maria and I are friends. And I will ship her books in from Australia. Right now, she's in Australia. HarperCollins Australia just flew her down there for three weeks. So I get her stuff, and I have the Australian covers too. We have a new author, well, not new author, but she's been publishing since the late 20 teens and she's gotten huge like absolutely gigantic and she's wonderful and her name's Lucy Score and we're doing a great job with her stuff too. So I know you have used books, you have new books. Are they all together or do you have them like in separate sections? I've seen different bookstores that are hybrids do different things. Mine are in totally different sections. I don't want people to be confused. Like The new books are much more expensive than the used books. So I want them to know. I've gone to the hybrid model where it's like they're right next to each other. So I'm wondering, with selling rare books, used books, new books, does that, from a business inventory standpoint, does that make everything like way more complicated? A little bit. In fact, one of my employees made us a database system, and I just upgraded this week to Anthology, which is a really well-known database system for books. We only inventory our new books. Our used books are all in sections by genre, alphabetized by author's last name, so I can take you to that section. And I usually know, it's going to sound really weird, I don't have a photographic memory, but I have a really good memory for books. So a lot of times Mm -hmm. I'll know if I touched the book. And I'll say, oh, no, that one hasn't come in yet. I have never touched that. And people always look at me like I'm out of my mind. I'm like, I know what I've touched. <laughs> it's like that superpower or like um, not ESP, but what's where if you touch something, like all the, you know, the vibe comes to you, you can see things. Yeah, psychometric. You know talking about. Mm-hmm. There you go. <laughs> you have a psychometric superpower. Well, and it's because I right love there. them. And so they'll they'll mess with me sometimes if they change the covers. Because I will admit that some of it <laughs> is the book and the title, but a lot of it's the cover. And it's like, nope, I haven't seen that cover before. Oh, that's a different cover. So you said that the pandemic was really why you started adding new books. Have you seen a change in like your clientele or anything like that from adding the new books from oh, just having used books and rare so, books? So, I mean, we had some new books, but it was probably only two bookcases. So what it is, is we embedded a new bookstore. That that was part of the building 86 bookcases is we made more space because the cases are thinner now. So the embedded new bookstore is the size of some independent bookstores because they're so tiny because it's really expensive to carry new books because of the outlay of investment. Used books is a lot of time. Right. New books is a lot of money. So... The adding the new books has changed the flavor. And we have some people that only shop the new books. They have absolutely no interest in wading through used books. I have other people that would not walk into my embedded new bookstore on a bet. They're like, oh, that's too expensive. (laughs) I'm like, okay, that's why we have both. We also carry remainders, Mm -hmm. which are new books that have been sent back to the publisher, and then the publisher sends them to what's known as remainder warehouses. And then we can go and shop at the remainder warehouses as a bookstore. Like as a consumer, you can't go. They're not set up for that, but they are set up for the for bookstores. So remainders, I also hand choose. New books let me really curate. Used books, there's not as much curation because 
we're big and we take a lot and I have stuff that, that isn't necessarily to my taste, but it's still really popular. Mm -hmm. So I'll sell it, but not new. You know, when you get, say somebody brings, maybe they had an estate sale or, you know, cleaning out an estate and they bring you books. Do you have to sit down and do, you know, like online research to sort of figure out if certain books are worth things or have you been doing this long enough that you know and, and have a good feel for it? without necessarily needing to use the internet. I think everybody has to use the internet because things change. And sometimes books mm-hmm. that were worth money 10 years ago, because what happened is when we quit doing online, I literally just closed those two bookcases off, two or three bookcases. And I was like, I'm done. I'm not selling rare stuff for a while. I'll just leave them sit there. And now I'm actually rechecking them. And some of them aren't worth anything. Perfect example, Vincent Price did a cookbook. So Vincent Price, the horror actor, did a cookbook back in the 70s. I used to sell that book online for $75 to $150. The first edition just came into the store the other day. I told my employee that was working on that, I was like, hey, check this one. She said, it's a $25 book now. And that's no big deal. Somebody's going to grab it and be super excited because I don't check very carefully. My net is very loose now. So if it gets stuck on the rare book thing, it's going to be unusual. So... Lots of dealers come here and shop for me, and I'm totally cool with that. I don't have the time to go through like I used to. So now it's more like price and put out, and that's better. The Strand in New York was always like that. They do have people checking, but I know a lot gets through their net because there's just so much coming in. Okay, so now we have to talk about one of the other very unique features of your bookstore is that you have some very unique booksellers in the cat form. You've got regular bookstore cats, and sometimes you even have cats that are available for adoption. So how did this piece become part of your bookstore? So I actually wanted to start with the adoptables. I did not want to have permanent store cats. I just wanted cats that were up for adoption because I was so afraid of how much it would hurt when I lost a cat that was a bookstore cat and people would ask me about him every couple days. And I thought, nope, I'm just going to save lives. I'm just going to work with this rescue. The rescues cast away critters. They're wonderful. They're a nonprofit. And I started with these two cats, Ginger and Gretchen, who were here for two years and they were abominable. They were terrible, terrible cats. (laughs) Unfriendly. Now, not attacking or, you know, peeing in bad places. They were just really aloof. It took me two years to get them adopted. When I finally got them adopted, I was like, bye, bye, bye. And in the interim, because they were so them, we ended up starting with having permanent store cats because they were terrible. And that was 10 years ago. We're now at number 195. Hopefully number 196 is coming in today. Now, I tried one uh, that just left. Because of working with a rescue, if the fit isn't right, we can trade them back. And I had one who loved her last foster mom so much that she came in here and was in mourning. Her heart was broken and she was unfriendly, but you could see it was just, oh my gosh, I found my forever home and she hates me and she abandoned me. And that isn't what happened. The foster was crying too. She loved this cat, but she's like, I have to save more cats. She's back with that woman. Mm -hmm. They're going to be happy together. It's great. So the fit isn't always right. We had a boy cat who thought the bathroom was for going to the bathroom. We don't have a litter box there. So he couldn't stay. Oh. That just happened. I've had two yeah. bad, not bad ones, but ones that weren't the right fit. But like I said, that's the great thing about right. the rescue is they'll take them back, which is how I've gotten 195 to find homes. But right now I have three permanents who all came in slightly different ways. 
Well, tell us. Their names Zach, Annika, and Mouse. I love the pictures that you post of them on, on Instagram. Okay, nobody else can hear me. Mouse is my favorite. I think he knows. So <laughs> Mouse was because of the pandemic. They weren't fixing cats in Pennsylvania. That was not considered essential. So we got this call and somebody brought us a black cat and they said, she's really friendly here. And I called the rescue and the rescue said, yes, you can take her. And they took her to the vet and they shaved her belly and tested her for all the diseases and gave her back and said, she's not fixed, but we're not doing that right now. She's your problem. And I had a funny sinking suspicion. So I kept her in the cage because I did not want her to have kittens somewhere in the store where I could not find them. And sure enough, I came in one morning and it was Bellatrix and five little squirming babies. They were still covered in goop. And there was, everything was still there. They were all perfectly healthy. Bellatrix was a great mom. And because it was during the shutdown, we were able to keep them and play with them. And every day we weighed them and we made sure everybody was okay. And Bellatrix was wonderful. And every day of the pandemic, we put pictures of, of the kittens up. And we had to keep Mouse because he loved us the most and we loved him the most. I'll admit the other ones went to some of our friends. So one of my best friends has Severus, his brother, (laughs) and my sister has his sister, Lyra. So I do get to see the the other kittens, but Mouse is our baby. Anika, we say Anika because that's what her original owner said. So her story is my next door neighbor was 78 years old and bought herself a Himalayan kitten. Purebred, brought it over to me, cute little ball of fur, and said, so I'm going to die before this cat. Will you promise me you'll take her? (laughs) And Betty didn't have anybody. Oh. And I said, absolutely, Betty. I totally promise. But you could outlive the cat. She's like, let's be real here. No. And five years later, the police came to the bookstore. They had done a welfare check. And they said, Betty's never coming out of the hospital. But all she's worried about is this cat. And oh. I, I was like, what do I need to do? Get me the cat. And they gave me her um, hospital information as well. So I was able to go to the hospital and say, Betty, I have Anika. I will keep her forever, just like I promised. She's totally safe. Betty did pass then. But Anika's been with us ever oh. since. That's six years now. And she's the grumpy, grumpiest cat in the whole world. But funny. <laughs> oh, so funny with that angry, angry face. And the funniest thing about Anika <laughs> is she loves to go on adventures. Once a week, we take her all over central Pennsylvania. We put her on her little leash, which we didn't put her in until she was 10. And she like works it like she's a model and she like glares at people, but she lets them pet her outside the bookstore, not inside the bookstore, but outside the bookstore. So she's great. (laughs) And then Zach, um, this is going to sound so mean. Zach is a foster fail in that he was here and he was up for adoption, but we decided we had to keep him. He's really dumb. Like, he's really, really (laughs) dumb. And so it's hard. But lovable. But just, if you've been around cats and you look in his eyes and there's just nothing there. Nothing. They all wear collars that people always ask about. And I'm like, they don't hurt them. They're alarms. So they don't make it into the front of the store. Zach Mm. is the reason we all have alarms. Because Zach walks into the front of the store to walk out the door to see his new friends all the time. So Zach is actually locked up. We have a kitten room that's like a bedroom size where they hang out at night because I don't want anyone to get hurt or do anything crazy when we're not here. But Zach is in the kitten room or he'd be setting the alarm off every couple minutes. And then I have to yell, Zach, don't do that. And he looks at me like, what is that sound? I'm like, oh my gosh, you've done it again. Mouse is so smart. He knows when the battery dies and then he'll be out front, but only when the battery dies. So, well, 
you know, you, you post so many pictures of them on your Instagram. And like I said, that's how I initially saw your page somehow. I don't know. It's popped up on my feed. And I personally love a store pet, no matter what store it is. And I really would frequent a store just for that reason alone. So I'm wondering if you have an internet following for your cats. Have you seen a difference in your clientele or anything Oh, absolutely. Like that? We get people, well, we went viral on TikTok because of the cats. So 4 million mm. people saw the one cat video and that it got covered by Newsweek magazine. Yes. Oh, really? So I back no in idea. April, I think Newsweek did like, I mean, cause they're online only now, but it was the Newsweek, like the real one. And they interviewed my husband and my husband, the cats are my husband, not the cats in their existence. Like we all decided that, but he's the one that does all those cat pictures. He thinks it's so much fun. So I just let him run with it. And we do get a lot of people that are here just to see the cats. We collect donations for castaway critters. So we give them a couple hundred dollars a month. Every time somebody doesn't get a bag, we give plastic bags, but I don't like them, but I don't feel like it's fair to not give them. But if somebody doesn't get a bag, we give a nickel to Castaway. So between those nickels mm -hmm. and donations, they get a couple hundred dollars a month just because of us having the cats here. That's fantastic. In some of the pictures you post, it looks like there's ramps so that they can get on the top of the bookshelves and things like that. Oh, Is absolutely. that accurate? That so have... since the, the ceiling's 18 feet high, the catwalks are at 14 feet. And yeah, there are ramps and steps and so they go up on the catwalks and the catwalk is the video that went nuts. That's the one that has like 4.2 million views. Okay. So we sit here and talk about the bookstore cats all day, but you said you have a ton of book clubs. Let's talk about those. So why did you start those and what kind of book clubs so do you have? So originally I started an urban fantasy book club and it was when urban fantasy was really big. It was, you know, Jim Butcher and Laurel K. Hamilton and Charlene Harris. And I loved all of that stuff. And I wanted a book club that wasn't literary fiction. Like I wanted it to be fun stuff. And then we did some books that were by authors. They were teen books. And one of my book club members brought her niece who was 12. And her 12-year-old niece, I wanted to go back to reading books that had sex in them. And I was like, we're not talking about this with a 12-year-old. But she was great. So we gave Emily her own book club, which was a teen book club. Emily just graduated with her master's degree. <laughs> so that shows you that teen is at least 12 years old. So Urban Fantasies, like 14. And then I just kept adding them. It's like potato chips. I couldn't just do one. So now we have eight every oh Tuesday gosh. and Thursday, and, and I run seven of them. So you read all the books for all the book clubs, except for maybe the eighth? Yes. The, the eighth, eighth one, one, sometimes I read. So the eighth one is a national movement. It's called Well-Read Black Girl. It's yeah. a great one. Okay. Um, yeah. But I don't feel that I'm qualified to run that book club. I'm qualified to go to that book club. Everybody's welcome. But I shouldn't be the one running it. So one of my employees, that was her book club. She actually just got another job. She's awesome. She still runs the book club. She still comes back for that. She was here last night visiting. So she still one, runs Well-Read Black Girl. But I run mystery, fantasy, teen, romance, and then the two random book clubs, which are Fun Yarns and, oh, I think I run Fountain of Youth. Oh, and Storymakers. Yeah, I have a lot of book clubs. <laughs> 
Fun Yarns is literally we set up a table and people do crafts and then we do book reports. Like we talk about anything we've been reading. So that's the one for people that don't want to oh. be forced to read anything specific. That's a cool, yeah. a cool so idea. So they just talk about what they've been reading. And so it's, it sounds like it's a good way to find out it is. new reads. It's, it's that. It's recommending things. And most, most people that come to my book clubs read fiction. But that's the one where if you read nonfiction, you can tell everyone about it and talk about it. So that's a neat one. Fountain of Youth is adults reading teen books. Ah, uh, yeah. Talk like about the subtext. Mm-hmm. You know, the stuff that's not on the page sometimes. We'll read Sarah J. Moss for that because we're not going to read Sarah J. Moss for Teen Book Club. Because if I have a 12 year old coming, I love Sarah's books, but we're not reading her with 12 year olds because I'm not having those discussions. Mm-hmm. I'm not their moms. Right. 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 And then what was the last one? You said Storymakers story is actually a challenge book club. And it is, it's based off the idea that what we write is informed by what we read. So it's challenge questions to get you to work on your writing. That one a lot, we do some plot Mm. busting. Everybody there is a writer and we talk about like, hey, like this writing book was really helpful to me. Or I just read a book that was set first person present tense and it's a mystery novel in first person present tense, which is hard to find. So it's like read a book that's your tense, your genre and your point of view. Oh, wow. And why, like, what did you like about it? What didn't you like? Because doing first person present tense can be hard. It's a little off-putting to a lot of people. So it's like, why did you cho- choose to do that? Or why do you think Tessa Bailey chose to do that with my killer vacation? You know, and did she do a good job? Which answer is yes, she did a great job. Huh. That's an amazing idea. I've never heard of anything like that, but perfect. Oh my goodness. You have such good book clubs. So it seems only fitting that for you to be so immersed in books all the time that you yourself have written a book. And actually, your second book is in this series called Death Motors is getting ready to come out. So I love the tagline at your website, deathmotors.com. <laughs> the tagline is, who hasn't wanted to kill a car salesman? So that's awesome. So tell us more about, about the so, series. So admittedly, the store's been really busy. So yeah, the second book will be coming out next year. Because I got stuck in edits and it was done. The first draft's been done for a long time, but the store is so busy that I can't devote the time that it deserves. So it is still out there. It'll come out next year. But it's based on the idea there are so many cozy mysteries set right now in the book world. Like they're set at libraries and bookstores and coffee shops and bakeries. Those are happy places. People don't want to kill people there. I hardly ever want to kill my customers. Like hardly ever. In all of these years, I've only maybe wanted to kill a handful of customers. In the car business, I guarantee you at every single car dealership, there is someone who is thinking about murder every day. It could be a customer who wants to kill their salesperson. It could be a salesperson who wants to kill their manager. Often it's salespeople wanting to kill other salespeople. I mean, sales draws sociopaths. It does. I mean, like I've read the books on sociopaths. They're sociopaths. They're most of them are dangerous, but they're still sociopaths. So that was where the idea came from. And a husband who's 20 years in the car business, some of the stories came right out of him. So book two is written. Book three is written. Book four is not written. Book four, I have all the ideas down for. And literally all of his fellow employees have asked me to write this book and they all want to be the murderer. They all picked the same victim. (laughs) So yeah, (laughs) that one's death of a lot lizard. 
Lot lizard doesn't mean what it means like in truck stops. Lot lizard at car dealerships means like the guy that goes and steals everybody's customers. Now I'm really concerned my daughter's boyfriend is he's taking a gap year just after high school and he's going to go start selling cars next week. So I'm really I'm like, oh, God, it is a great job for a gap year. The only danger, honestly, is that he will make so much money he'll decide not not to go to school because for yeah, a job that yeah. does not require higher education, you can make really, really good money. That's why they stay. Yeah. Well, you have been amazing. So then it's no surprise to me now that you have won several bookseller awards, including the 2019 RWA Steffi Walker Bookseller of the Year Award. So tell us a little bit about that. What qualifications does a person have to that- meet? It was totally a surprise. I knew people that were romance writers because I love romance so much and I'm super romance positive and they put me up for it. And I just got this call. You've won this award. Congratulations. We're going to give you a free room in New York City on Times Square. Your conference is free. We'll fly you here. And I was like, I'm in Harrisburg. Um, No need. I'll take the train. And it was really great. And it was just being romance friendly. And a lot of the awards I've won have been romance related because a lot of independent bookstores poo-poo romance or they think Nicholas Sparks is romance. FYI, he's not. Romance demands a happy ending. And if your characters die, that's not happy. I was just saying, for people who don't know, RWA is the Romance Writers yes. Association. Is that yep. accurate? Yep. Yeah. Romance Writers okay. of America. And it was a huge organization in 2019. It had issues. So, and before that, actually, apparently the awards that I win are then organization killers because I also won <laughs> RT, which was the RT did a conference every year and I won their bookseller of the year. And then I won their project award as well. And they also no longer exist. So... <laughs> RT was delightful. It was amazing. They were like the best conferences in the entire world. It was romantic times. Uh, My experience with, you know, different types of genre writing and different types of readers is that romance readers and sci-fi readers in particular are super passionate about the books that they read. I mean, super passionate. And so you getting that award must mean a lot because that means they were super passionate well, about and you. I'm super passionate about <laughs> romance. Like I believe that happily ever afters, I think that reading things where people are happy at the end, it's just such hope. And one of the romance authors said that is romance is the genre of hope. And we have a much better chance of having that happen to us. Not that you have to fall in love to be happy, but most people are going to have an experience where they fall in love. People are far, far, far less likely to be chosen by the aliens to go and save the universe, I hope. Or find a dead body. Like mystery novels, find a dead body. I don't ever want to find a dead body. Ever, ever, ever. I can write about it, but I don't ever want to be the one. I don't want to find a dead mouse, much less a dead human. Well, Michelle, now I think Carrie and I must come and visit because your bookstore sounds amazing and we need to do another road trip. I think now is a good time for us to take a little break, a little breather. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Michelle and with Carrie. Carrie, tell me what you were reading. So I started an audiobook on the trip when I went up to Ohio, and it's by Sachi Cole. It's called One Day We'll All Be Dead and None of This Will Matter, which 
actually, it's kind of funny because that was my sentiment last night. You and I went out to a book talk and and I said something to this effect. So <laughs> the thing is, the title is funny, but if you look at the, the frontispiece of the book, We'll All Be Dead and None Of is actually marked out. So if you read it, it says one day this will matter. It's kind of funny, but it's also serious too. So I had never heard of this author. Sachi Cole is a Canadian writer whose parents immigrated to the United States from India. They were both born there. So this book is a collection of essays about various topics. So for example, she has an essay about how much hair she has as a result of her Indian heritage. She talks about going to her cousin's Indian wedding and what that experience is like because Indian weddings last like seven days. She has an essay about being in a relationship with a white man whom she calls Hamhawk. She talks about <laughs> traveling. She talks about her niece. Her niece's father, <clears throat> excuse me, is Indian American and her mother is white. And so, you know, she talks about the fact that her niece is between these boundaries and she calls her niece Raisin. So I love some of the names that she calls family members. So, you know, some of these are, are funny. She's definitely got a humorous bent to them, but they're also serious. Weave throughout all of these is this consideration of what it means to be a non-white woman in a world in which cis white men have historically been the ones who determine what beauty standards are and, well, basically everything else. So it's a fairly short audiobook. I think it's about five hours or so. So it's not terribly long, but I like it in that it does have humor in it, but these topics are also very serious and very meaningful to the author. And she's in her 30s. So, you know, there's quite a bit of age difference between us. But I think some of the issues that she deals with, I think if you're a woman, you've sort of experienced on some level some of those things. So I would recommend it. That's what I've been uh, listening to. So Michelle, gosh, you've got a whole bookstore there. So what, what have you so been So interestingly reading? enough, to tie with your book, last night for book club, we did a book called Love, Chai, and Other Four-Letter Words by Anika Sharma. Oh. And it was her book for source books. It's a romance. And the main character is a woman from India who moved here when she was 18. And this book takes place when she's 28. And it's navigating friendships and family ties and being involved with a white man. So it's just interesting that that's what you just read. So it ties in. I thought it was a great book. It was super discussable for book club last night. And it was just great. So that was last night's romance book club. I tend to skew romance. The book I read the day before that was Maggie Moves On, which is Lucy Score's first traditionally published book. She's huge and indie. And her Things We Never Got Over is fabulous. And she also has a whole series set here in Harrisburg. It's the Riley Thorne Romantic Comedy Mysteries. And since they're set in Harrisburg, they're fantastic. And I just think she's great. So that's some of what I've been reading lately. I read a book a day. Every year I try to read less. So my goal this year is to read only 200 books. So since my goal is only 200, I'm at 126. Do novellas count? Do audiobooks count? Yes, they both count. (laughs) They all count. (laughs) How do you possibly, how do you read a book a day and still function? And and running a business is so, you know, awesome. So how do you do that? I read at night. I don't watch television and I kind of put my phone down when I walk in the door. So we usually don't get home till 8.30, 9 o'clock. Now, last night we didn't get home till after 10 because book clubs run 7 to 9. So then we had stuff to do at the store. So we were home after 10. Last night I didn't read. But I read 100 pages an hour and I read easy books. 
for the most part, the stuff I read is not deep. It is not hard. It's fun. So I'd love to know what happens next. So at 100 pages an hour, if I read from 9 until, you know, 11 or midnight, it's the perfect time. So, wow. So the first book you mentioned. First book, it's called Love, Chai, and Other Four-Letter Words. Okay. And it's from Source Books, and it was awesome. That sounds like one I would like. And the Lucy Score book. So what's that one about So Lucy Score is about a woman who has a business. She's a house flipper, but where she really makes her money is on social media. She's an influencer. And so she never settles down. Hence, Maggie moves on. And what happens when she runs into someone and something that makes her maybe want to think about settling down? She's 34. Lucy's characters are always adults, which I really like. I love reading books about people who fall in love in college, too. I love new adult. But I really love books where I find the characters to be relatable. And one of the things with the Maggie book Mm -hmm. is she's running a business. So everyone thinks, oh, you have this great life. And she does, but there's difficulties in running your own business, and it's really hard to flip houses. So it was great. I have to look up that author, especially since she has some based in Oh, she's wonderful. And she made her career, like, writing independently, but now she's starting to get picked up by some of the publishers. Like, she just announced that her big book, Things We Never Got Over, which has been in the top 10 on The Bad Place since January when it came out. Sorry, there's no other way for me to describe Amazon. I hate them. But it's been in the top 10 on Amazon since January. Like, it hasn't fallen off. And that's in all books, not just romance. It just got picked up by Sourcebooks, which is my favorite publisher. Okay, so tell me, why is that Because your they publisher? are super, super supportive of independent bookstores, things like Bookstore Romance Day, and also independent authors. Like, I think for a publisher, they're doing it right. I see a lot of publishers who are just throwing stuff at a wall and trying things and trying to pick up authors that haven't even written books because they saw an Instagram post, and it just makes my head throb. Mm-hmm. Well, Amy, what did you finish this week? <laughs> Well, the one I'm going to talk about is not light at all compared to the the ones that you talk about. I read a book by audiobook called Notes on an Execution by Danya Kukovka. And this is a book about a serial killer, but maybe not in the way that you would think. So this book appealed to me initially for a couple of different reasons. Firstly, I do appreciate a good crime book, especially true crime about serial killers. They're always kind of fascinating to me, but this one is a work of fiction. So it's a little different. I've not read much, if any, fiction about that topic. And secondly, this book came onto my radar when several people I know raved about the audiobook version. And I'm always looking for compelling audiobooks. And so while my description may make this sound like it's a thriller crime novel, it is not. Not really. This falls squarely into literary fiction, and there's a little bit of a mystery involved. So this is the story of Ansel Packer, who when the novel begins, he's on death row for multiple murders of women, and his execution is scheduled to take place in 12 hours. And he's living the last day of his life. And this book counts down from 12 hours all the way to zero. But within that time, we get his perspective on his life. But in alternating chapters, we also get the point of views of three women who have been a part of Ansel's life. His mother, Lavender, a childhood acquaintance named Safi, and his sister-in-law, Hazel. And just so you know, all these women are alive. These None of these people are victims of his. But between these four points of view, the reader gets a fairly whole picture of Ansel. And generally what you find in most media about serial killers 
is that they're they're the epitome of evil, right? Well, the author here gives a more nuanced vision of her killer, Ansel. He's not a sympathetic character. He isn't likable. We don't like him. But through this book, the reader can see how he turned out to be the man that he becomes. He's a whole person. And people are complicated. And what I loved about this book is that we see those complexities. It's always been my belief that no one is wholly good or wholly bad. It's a spectrum. And in Ansel's case, his badness often wins. But there's a line where his childhood acquaintance, Safi, says, Ansel was bad and he would die for it. But Safi knew that he was other things too. So I don't want to tell you too much more about the actual story because even though I would call this literary fiction, there are some twists and turns about Ansel's story that I didn't see coming. I thought I knew where this was going and then it would surprise me. And so I listened to the audiobook and I highly recommend it. There are two narrators. Ansel is narrated by Jim Meskimen and then the women's chapters are na- narrated by Mozan Marno. And it was a great audiobook experience. But I actually alternated between the audiobook and the physical book because I enjoyed this book so much. I really wanted to see what happened. And I'm a slow audiobook listener. So I alternated in between the two. I love this book. I gave it four and a half stars, but I also finished it at 3 a.m. this morning. So given a little more coffee and more thought, I might even bump my rating up to five stars. (laughs) Sometimes I do that. If days or weeks later, I'm still thinking about a book, it usually means I need to increase my rating, but I would highly recommend it. Sounds really good. And and you're a picky audiobook person. So I am. Yeah, but I do love a book that has multiple narrators. Yeah. Uh that does help me, especially with fiction. So very good. Yeah. Well, these all sound interesting. Let's go ahead and take another quick break. And when we come back, Michelle's gonna be in the hot seat and answer her three in the third degree. We are back with Michelle Herring, owner of Cupboard Maker Books in Enola, Pennsylvania. So, Michelle, first question for you. Tell us how you ended up on a famous TV show. So, I was on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And what happened is for my 40th birthday, so I actually know when it happened, so it was 10 years ago, they were doing tryouts here in Harrisburg. And my best friend and I at the time sat down and we're like, it was after my party. We were the only two left. And we said, we should go try out for that. We don't get to spend enough time together. Let's go do the tryouts. So we had to do a written test. And then there was an interview and then an on-screen. And I'll admit, I thought, I know trivia. I should do okay on the written test. I think I'll pass that, but I'll probably blow the interview. But I didn't. Kelly and I both passed the written test. We went in, and as soon as the producer asked, what do you do? And I said, I'm a stay-in-the-bookstore mom. She said, let's get you on camera right now. (laughs) So I got on camera, and I did make it onto the show. I blew out on the second question, and it was a literature question. Oh, (laughs) because of course I did. It was poems, though, and I don't do poetry. So the question was, they gave me rhyming words, and they said, which poem were these in? And I was like, I could tell you who wrote all of those poems, but I can't tell you which one they're in. So I did blow up on the second question. Kelly also made it. Kelly, my best friend at the time, who was a car salesman. And interestingly enough, when she was on, they never mentioned her being in car sales. They totally mentioned me owning a bookstore. So Meredith Vieira was the host, and she was delightful. It was a great experience. I'm happy I did it. I would totally do something like that again in case anybody wants to contact me and ask me to do it. (laughs) (laughs) So I have to ask you, who was your lifeline? They weren't doing lifelines anymore by that time. 
You went with an audience response, which I did actually listen to the audience, Bad Life Choice, but they did an audience (laughs) response and you could skip a question. But if you skip the question and the question, I wouldn't skip it because you could just automatically win a trip to Disney on a cruise. And I was like, I don't want to lose the Disney cruise. I think I'll just guess. I should have skipped the question, but that's okay. It was still really fun. Oh, wow. That's great. That's a great story. Okay. So this kind of leads into your question number two, because I really want to know about what it was like raising your son in a bookstore. How did you handle naps? He really was delightful in that he loved to stay in his playpen. So I kept him in his pack and play as long as possible. By the time, until he was six months, he was actually with his dad because I had to finish teaching and his dad worked nights at FedEx and then I would teach during the day and then his mom helped us out. So we really, at six months, I was like, okay, naps aren't necessarily happening anymore. So he would stay and play in his playpen all day long. The worst was the time that I locked him in the bookstore. It was a really small bookstore (laughs) and it locked automatically. And he was in his playpen, so he was safe. But it was like that scene from Star Trek where, like, they're touching through the glass because I couldn't get to him. <laughs> and, I mean, it was 15 minutes till my mom came over with keys, but it was still really scary. He was great. He was the perfect child for a bookstore. He's able to entertain himself. I will admit we did introduce him to books and screens a little bit early, but he obviously liked it. He still works in the bookstore. I mean, he's 20 now. And I get people that come in. And they're like, I fed you chocolate donuts when you were two years old. And now look at you. You're taller than me. I'm like, yeah, that's that's what happens. Not only did you, do you have bookstore cats, you had a I bookstore did. kid that people could come in and visit. A bookstore you know, baby. Though, and interestingly enough, and I was very aware of that, but if you looked at any of our advertising or news stories or anything on social media, nobody knew because it felt hmm. too targety to me. Like bookstore cats I love and I love I love promoting them, but I was always afraid that somebody would find out about Riley. Not so much now, obviously, that he's yeah. 20. It's irrelevant. It's good that I have a 20-year-old male in the store with me most of the time. But when he was little, it did scare us. There was never an issue except the time that he walked out the door when he was two. But that was the scariest 10 minutes of my life. I thought my husband was watching him. He thought I was watching him. We're on a busy highway with train tracks across the street. He was behind the building and he was perfectly safe, but he did get a nanny at that point. So it wasn't just me. Mm -hmm. His nanny was a huge influence. She was wonderful, but she nannied him in the store. So they would do art. And now he's an artist. Some of it's that. So they would do art and she would keep an eye on him. Because it did get hard trying to talk to customers. Plus, he was very crafty. He knew to ask me for things I wouldn't usually give him when I was helping a customer. Mm, yeah. That's a good move. Bad for you, but good for him. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty savvy move right there. All right. Last question. So what is the best thing about living in Pennsylvania? And what is your favorite place in the state that you would recommend visitors go to? So I love living in central Pennsylvania because I can go anywhere in practically anywhere in four hours. In two hours, I can get to really cool places. I can go to DC or Philadelphia or Baltimore in two hours. I'm at New York City in three, State College in less than two, and then Pittsburgh in three. I like to go to places around the state and I love to travel to other bookstores, but my favorite thing to probably do in central Pennsylvania is Hershey. 
I love Hershey Park. I love mm-hmm. the restaurants in Hershey. We had season passes for years and years and years. When my son was small, that was where we'd get away to. We'd get away to Hershey Park together. So I would highly suggest anything Hershey related. This year, I have a great opportunity to work with Hershey Library. We're doing the Chocolate Town Book Festival in October. It'll be our the second one. And I'm really excited about that. But Hershey really does smell like chocolate. And the street lamps are really Hershey Kisses. Like it's a wrapped one and an unwrapped one alternating. Okay. I have to know Chocolate Town Book Festival. What is that? Do they serve you chocolate So we will not, books? we are right in the middle. It might smell like chocolate. There will be restaurants nearby where you can get many chocolate things. You can actually see where we're having the festival. You can see Hershey Park and all of its lovely rides nearby. So we'll be talking about chocolate, but it is a festival I know. Uh, it's 50 authors and they're all Pennsylvania authors. We have four headliners. Uh, Kate Bear, who writes poetry, is one of them. John Vircher, he writes crime fiction. Misty Simon writes cozy mysteries. And oh, Sarah Walters writes really good teen fiction that's really compelling. I didn't think there was anything better than cats and books, but chocolate and books, you know, wow, that's a that's an awesome pairing. Well, Michelle, it has been so great chatting with you. Thanks so much for spending the morning. You've got 15 minutes until the store opens. So go relax for 15 minutes before the busyness of your day begins. Thanks so much for sharing Cupboard Thank Maker you so Books very much for us. inviting me. This was delightful. It was so nice talking to you. You can find Cupboard Maker Books on Instagram and Facebook at Cupboard Maker Books and at their website, www.cupboardmaker.com. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at the Perks of Being Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.